Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Reformed Meditations. I'm Lee, and I'm glad to be speaking with you again and ready to get into the book of Hebrews again with you. So where we left off last time, we were beginning in chapter 1, went through the first nine verses, and we were talking about how Jesus Christ is so much better than an angel and so much better than a man because he is neither an angel nor merely man. He's the God-man. And so the preacher of Hebrews uh, was already laying out some Old Testament cross-references pointing to the deity of Christ and his supremacy over all things. And we're going to look through the rest of chapter 1 now at a few more of those references. So starting in verse 10. And, and so we're getting another quote. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. End quote. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So we're seeing here, continuing in the argument now, we're looking at the eternality of the Son of God. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. So not only did he exist in the beginning, is not created, but has been in existence for eternity. He laid the foundation of the earth. So he wasn't a man born on the earth and then became God, like some cultists would say. He has always been God, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of his hands, And then he condescended to be born as a man, to be the God-man. All of these things, as verse 11 says, all these things will perish, but you will remain. That creation wasn't made to be eternal like God. It will pass away. Not only the earth itself, but all the things that fill it, all the creatures, all the plants, you know, the animals, the people, we all have an expiration date. But Christ doesn't have an expiration date. Now, some would say, well, tell that to, tell that to somebody who died. Uh, for instance, the, the Muslim may say, well, that's true, but, but Jesus died. Uh, and, uh, or maybe he didn't. Maybe he was merely swapped out on the cross. But regardless, the, the norm is that people die. And that's what a lot of people try to say that Christ did and deny the resurrection. But he remains, as it says in verse 11. All the old creation will become old like a garment, and like a mantle, you'll roll them up, and they disappear, they get put away. But God isn't like that. Christ isn't like that. There is no wearing out of Christ. There's no wearing out of God the Father or the Holy Spirit. The Trinity are eternal. They don't get tired. They don't get worn out. They don't have to be replaced. You can think of how many 
generations of garments that, that we've had in the course of our life. Whether we were a kid and you have clothes that you rapidly grow out of, or you get older and you you grow out of those clothes too and you have to buy bigger clothes and things like that. There's no change in God. How he is now is how he always has been. There's no shadow of turning with, with him. Now what's interesting about this passage is that this comes from Psalm 102, which is a psalm that's begging God for consolation, that there's some immense suffering going on, and the psalmist is asking for help from God, specific help that's in Psalm 102, verse 12. Here's what the psalm says. But you, O Lord, abide forever in your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. So what's interesting in those two verses to me is that the preacher of Hebrews is bringing out the fulfillment of this scripture in Christ. The psalmist is asking for compassion on Zion, uh, Jerusalem. It's time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. So as with foreshadowing scriptures from the Old Testament, they'll often have two meanings, like an immediate meaning and then a future meaning, especially in, in a say, a messianic psalm. So the psalmist here is asking for a specific kind of compassion, that, that peace would come to the city of Jerusalem, that whoever these accusers are that are against him or against the nation will be silenced, will be removed, um, and that times of peace would come. But there was an even greater appointed time for peace, not only to Zion, but to peoples across the entire world. In fact, I think that is actually put best by Paul himself in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. I'll go to, go to verse 6 as well. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So there's a clear description of this appointed time, this fullness of time that God intended for the salvation of his people from their sins. So again, we have to say, what angel has ever been sent to remove people's sins from them? Was there ever a plan for an angel to be the sacrifice to cleanse the entire elect? No, there's no evidence for that at all. There was only the Messiah, uh, one like a son of man, who was to come and do that work. And we have an inspired record of the events and all the ways that he fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, saying that he would come and do that very thing. But then we have further fulfillment of prophecy, as we see in verse 13 here. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
which is probably the most cited section from the Psalms in the entire New Testament. Psalm 110, probably the, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, of the Messianic Psalms, which is about the, the session of Christ. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, which is what we confess in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is about the absolute lordship of Christ over all things, not merely human nations or even the planet Earth, but the entirety of creation, all the, the width and breadth of that. Rule in the midst of your enemies, it says in verse 2 of Psalm 110. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. This mighty king is going to shatter kings in the day of his wrath. That's in verse 5. He'll judge among the nations. He'll fill them with corpses. He'll shatter the chief men over a broad country. So he's an all-sovereign king. But not only is he a king... In verse 4, he's a king and a priest, and a special priest at that. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Which, remember, is that mysterious king that appeared to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. This is a, a line of priesthood that is completely separate from the priesthood that we know from Exodus and onward. This is no Levite. This is completely different and greater than that priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. This is the order that Roman Catholic priests pretend they're part of. Uh, they actually, when they're ordained, they actually say those words to the newly ordained priest in the ordination service that you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, there's only one priest in that order, and that's Christ Jesus. And it's a, a pretty serious uh, problem to, uh, to claim to be one in that line. There's only one great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. So he's eternal, going back to Hebrews now. He's eternal, he's a creator, he's the creator. Everything perishes before him, but he stays the same. There's no shadow. There's no dimming of his power or authority. In fact, he continues to sit at God the Father Almighty's right hand and will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Now, verse 14 here is what I really want to think about for a while. So it says again, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Okay, so we're, we're contrasting Jesus and angels. And it kind of comes to a point here describing the angels as ministering spirits. Now, that's not to say that Jesus didn't minister. Of course he did. Uh, in his earthly ministry, he ministered to so many people. Uh, he healed the sick, he taught large groups of people, he taught small groups of people, uh, namely his, his disciples, uh, he ate meals with people, he did various miracles, not, not only healings, but turning the water to wine, or walking on the water, all these sorts of things. 
uh, counseling people, raising Lazarus from the dead, all these kinds of things. So he did great ministry during his earthly earthly life. And really he ministers still now. Uh, he does this through intercession for his people at, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You know, he is our great intercessor to, with the Father. He's our advocate. But he's not a ministering spirit. And I think this is where the, the big distinction comes. That these angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service. So these are servant spirits. That could not be any more different from the person of God. We've just seen all of these texts through chapter 1 so far that are pointing to these great and glorious aspects of God's character, specifically of the character of Jesus Christ. That he's the Son of God, that angels worship him, that his throne is forever, that he truly loves righteousness, hates lawlessness, has been anointed with the oil of gladness, that he, from the very beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, that everything will perish, but he will remain the same. He won't be tired out. Uh, he won't uh, become less relevant. He will stay the same. And even as his creation may pass away, those all, all those things have an expiration date. He does not. And in fact, he sits at the right hand. He judges the nations. That's not rendering service. That's ruling. That's sovereignty. So these ministering spirits are not sovereign. They have a, a divinely appointed task, but they're not God. They serve God, right? Because we already saw before, as I mentioned, that the angels of God worship him, so they're even rendering a kind of service to God. They're praising his name before his throne, uh, and they're doing his bidding, which is good, but that's not Christ. Christ did the bidding of God, and he is God, but he had a much higher task, a, a much greater ministry than they do. Um, let's remember that they long to look into the work of the gospel. Uh, it's something that's marvelous and, and baffling to them. It, as in 1 Peter 1, 12, it says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, talking about those who, who uh, were carried along by the Holy Spirit and uh, wrote the scriptures. They were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. They long to look into not only the, the love of the Father, and Christ knows the love of the Father in a unique way, to say the least, being the only son from the Father, right? Uh, born in the flesh, but has for all eternity known the love and affection of God the Father. God even announced that love and approval audibly during the earthly ministry of Christ on two occasions, one at his baptism and then the other at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's never said that to any angel before. So that's something that the angels would certainly long to look into. But even more than that, longing to look into the power of the gospel, 
God didn't send his son to die for fallen angels. We have no written record of that, but he did send his son to die for sinful humanity, for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who are carrying that sin, who are continually practicing their sin and hating God, hating their creator. And instead he reconciles them rather than annihilating them as, as we all deserve. We deserve that wrath from God. But instead Christ came and shed his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins and credited his perfect righteousness to us who could never be righteous even if we wanted to. We simply don't have that ability. This is something that a ministering spirit, an angel, who's been tasked in in rendering service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation, it's simply something that they will never understand. And that's okay. The holy angels receive approval from God, but it's an approval of a much lower magnitude than the approval that Christ receives. Not only as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but as the faithful son who left behind his place to be born as a man and live the life of a man, sinless and perfect the way that man should have lived and became the propitiatory sacrifice for the sins of God's elect. Those are, those are acts of, of service um, commissioned by God on completely different levels. So there's no possible way that you could conflate one like a son of man with a created angel, a servant. So we're going to stretch into the beginning of chapter 2 as as the preacher continues the argument. For this reason, right, are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We simply must pay attention to the words of the New Testament. We're not going to get the full message solely based on the Old Testament. You know, there's a reason that there's so much inspired commentary on the Old Testament in the New Testament, because it's all one revelation. This is why partially I have issues with people who overemphasize the red letters in the Bible um, as the words of Jesus. No, the, the entire Bible is the word of Christ. If you were only putting the words of Christ in red, then you would have to print the entire Bible in red. There's no reason to emphasize one over the other. But there's no reason we should separate one from the other either. Not making one more important than the other, but not making an island out of the Old Testament and an island out of the New Testament. They are one body of work authored by the Holy Spirit. And so we would do well to pay attention to all of God's revelation, especially the revelation of the New Testament that truly harmonizes and finishes the picture that was being painted in the Old Testament. If we forget Christ, if, if we forget 
the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We forget the work that he did and still does for us because we are de-emphasizing parts of Scripture in favor of other parts. We are drifting. We will drift away from the gospel. And that's very dangerous. And and I think we've we've seen multiple examples of people that have tried that very thing. Sometimes it's people that are de-emphasizing the Old Testament to emphasize the New Testament as if the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, that somehow Jesus and God, Old Testament, in the Old Testament uh, books, are two different gods, two not only different but opposing gods. That's such a dangerous belief. It's preposterous. We should pay attention to all of God's word so we don't drift away from it. Because think about this, and I love this from verse 2, that if the word spoken through angels, a.k.a. the Old Testament, if that proved unalterable, which it does, Jesus himself said that not not the least stroke of a pen is going to fall from the law until all is fulfilled by him. So in that in that Old Testament, if every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, which they did, God God's law stands forever, God's righteous and holy and will punish the guilty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So if in the in the shadows and in the types that were to come, if the foreshadowing of the substance was so exacting when people forgot it, right? Remember, the Old Testament is filled with examples of Israel disregarding the law, disregarding the word of God and adopting the worship of idols, uh, or or doing multiple things to break God's law, and they received just penalties for those sins, how much worse would it be for us if we neglect the fulfillment of all of that, the person of Jesus Christ and his work to redeem his people? If we neglect our salvation, if we decide this isn't interesting enough, this isn't fun enough, we need to spice this up with mixing it with some other ideas or or recasting it as something else or or just adopting the label of Christian and going out and doing the other things that our sin nature would would desire to do or to draw a crowd with thinking of perhaps maybe the seeker sensitive movement for example which on its face seems to be ashamed of the gospel because it rarely declares it so-called sermons in those churches, which basically end up being a movie review of some kind or putting on a display or an experience that would make the employees of the Walt Disney Company envious and then just slapping a, a Jesus sticker on it at the very end. Those are the kind of things that neglect this great salvation. And why is that? Because they cut off the revelation of God. They cut off the preaching of the scriptures, the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, and they think that they can do it their own way better, that this is what worked in the, in the past, but 
we're too we're too modern for that now. We have to come up with a new way to do it. Don't we cannot neglect the salvation. We have to go to the source of the revelation that shows us the gospel, that teaches us who Jesus is, who God the Father is, who God the Holy Spirit is, that shows us our sin, tells us to repent, and then reveals the grace of God and his glory and the good works that we are called to once we are reconciled to him and of the glorious future that we'll have when we finally see him face to face and our sins are completely gone in a new heavens and a new earth. You're not going to get that from (laughs) a movie review on a Sunday morning. We have to go to the word. We cannot neglect so great a salvation. All right, well, thank you for spending some time in Hebrews with me. I hope this has been helpful and edifying and maybe even challenging. Uh, If you have any thoughts or questions, feel free to reach out. Reformed Meditations is on Twitter at Ref Meditations. You can also email directly at reformedmeditations at gmail.com. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you.